So do humans still have advantage over robots, or, or, or is the world about to be taken over by robot technology? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I I am looking at a headline right now. A glimpse of the future. Experts take first steps to create robot strawberry pickers who could end the need for humans toiling in fields. Yeah, this is a headline from the last 24 hours. Is this what's coming? Robots displacing humans, maybe from difficult jobs, maybe from all kinds of jobs. What does the future hold? Yeah, and all caps, robot strawberry pickers. Uh, Here's another headline, also within the last 24 hours. This robot will hunt lionfish to save coral reefs. Yeah, I mean, who else is going to do that, right? Underwater, little fish. This robot will hunt lionfish to save coral reefs. Uh, What's coming next? Artificial intelligence kind of taking over the world, it seems. I I was preaching in Australia a couple years ago and mentioned what was happening in Syria. And suddenly someone's iPhone went on and began to respond, thinking I was calling for Siri. You've heard the stories of somebody's Amazon Echo at home overhearing something on TV and getting online and ordering a product. Smart televisions monitoring what happens in your home. Where are things going? And is there a human advantage over robots? My guest today is Professor Jay Richards. This, of course, Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire. And Jay's one of these guys who's not just really smart, sharp, well-educated, great Christian perspective, but he's smart, well-educated in the areas that I'm not, which makes him seem all the more smart to me. He is professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, so scientific background as well as economic background, executive editor of The Stream, where I publish virtually all my articles, so hopefully you're at The Stream regularly, stream.org, the host of A Force for Good on EWTN, author of many books, including some bestsellers, but we're focusing today on his new book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work, in an age of smart machines. Jay, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Michael, great to be with you. So why did you write this book? Always the starting point. Why this book? Why now? Well, the book initially started out as something called Free to Create. It was really my sequel to another book I had written, Money, Greed, and God, which is really kind of the defense of uh, free enterprise from a Christian perspective. But when I ended that book, I realized that Actually, the human capacity as creatures made in the image of God to create new ideas was kind of the key and underappreciated economic point. So I always wanted to write something on that. And when I really got down to it, I realized what everyone was talking about, at least in the literature on economics, uh, was this supposed robot apocalypse, that the robots and artificial intelligence were essentially going to take over at least half the jobs 
in the next coming decade or maybe decade and a half. And I thought, well, that kind of directly challenges the idea of human uniqueness. And so I decided I'm actually going to speak to that uh, and make the case for human uniqueness and human creativity uh, and learned a bunch of new stuff that I didn't know before. So that, you know, I ended up on the other side, as you know, as an author, sometimes there's the book you start out to write and there's the book that you end up with. And, and this is where we ended up with the, is the human advantage. And of course it landed uh, just as daily reports tell us about amazing new things that r- robots are doing or supposedly doing. You know, I, I wrote an article a couple months back after getting a new artificial intelligence vacuum vacuuming machine that plots out the room and sends on the cell phone exactly where it did the work and goes back home to its charger to get recharged before launching out again. And it got me thinking about countries like Japan, where you have an aging population and you now have robots keeping the elderly, uh, giving them company and care and things like that. So it seems that that's the way things are going. So couldn't it be that our human brilliance creates these amazing robots and then we can kind of sit back and just enjoy life? I think there's something to that. I mean, that's, if, if you read the book, you know, I don't say, well, robots aren't going to do anything. Don't worry. There, no jobs are going to disappear. In fact, I actually think a huge number of the jobs we're doing, that is the ways we're doing things right now, are either going to be transformed or replaced by machines in the next 25 or 30 years. I actually agree on that point. The longer I studied it, the more convinced I became of that. But I also think that that's going to free us up to do other things that we don't do now and that we've never even thought of doing because we spend our time doing things that as it happens, we're going to be able to make machines to do. And so the farming, for instance, I actually think robots picking strawberries is a much longer term prospect because it involves complex bodily movements and reaching down for a strawberry. Of course, we already use machines to shake uh, uh, apples loose from trees because that's easy to make machines to do those things. And so what you discover is that there's a lot of things that you might think are really hard, things like w- winning at chess or beating the, the world champions at Jeopardy. We can actually make machines to do that, but getting a machine say, that, that can do landscaping or fine carpentry, that's actually a much more difficult thing. And so there are going to be all sorts of simple uh, factory jobs as well as white-collar office jobs from accountants and financial planners that are going to go the way of the dodo bird, I think. Then there are going to be these kind of middle jobs that involve complex bodily skills that are actually going to be around a lot longer than some of the ones that you think we might not be able to take over with machines. You know, it's, it's interesting you mention that because we have voice recognition that is advanced well beyond handwriting recognition. And I remember 15 years ago getting a program, and it was going to be the new thing in handwriting recognition, and you had to train it. And I spent days and days and days, and we'd run out of memory each time. And then they just dropped the product. So it is kind of interesting that things, artificial intelligence does certain things better than others. But but ultimately, we want to major on the, the human advantage issue. And friends, if you have a question about this, be it related to artificial intelligence, be it related to how this works out with the economy, or, or even larger economic questions about socialism versus capitalism, we, we're going to take some calls as well, 866-348-7884. And you know these are subjects I don't speak on much because they're not in my areas of strength. So this is a good opportunity for you to ask someone who's got some expert feedback for you. So you start off the book, how, how did we get here? In, in your first chapter, From Hunter-Gatherers to Homeowners, The Evolution of the American Dream. So 
Take us through it. How did, how did we get here, and where did the American dream come from? Well, the first American dream that we now call it, that's actually just a term that was coined in 1931, was really the idea of owning a family farm. So many of the immigrants, especially that came from Europe, you know, the Irish, for instance, they were mostly tenant farmers. They were oppressed. Many Irish were starving during the massive waves of Irish immigration. And so they had this dream, even if they landed in New York City or in Boston, of owning a farm. And up until the time of Really, after the Civil War, that was the kind of key dream for free Americans was to own their own family farm. You fast forward to the mid-20th century, say 1950, most people weren't thinking that way. In fact, far less than half the population at that time even lived on farms. And so most people were really thinking about uh, a job in a city or a suburb and owning a home. So that then by mid-20th century, over 60% of the population owned homes. Now, if you ask young millennials in their 20s, they don't talk about living on farms. They don't really even talk about owning homes. They talk about something kind of vaguer than that. It's really the, the opportunity to create value for other people. That's the thing that I hear over and over. And so that's the thing that I think is really important to preserve, not some previous version of the American dream. We want to say, okay, what makes sense given our particular stage of economic development? The other reason to sort of make this historical uh, story right at the beginning of the book is I wanted people to realize that what's happened now has happened other times in the past. This is not the first time when we've been in a, an inflection point between one completely one type of economy into something that's radically different. Just that move from the agrarian stage, which is where the American founding, where it started at the time of the American founding, 95% of the population were living and working on farms. Then by 1900, it was half the population. Now, Michael, less than 2% of the population lives and works on farms. And so, you know, in 1776, the skeptic might have said, well, gosh, if farming gets really productive with all these steam engines, then there'll be thousands of people. You know, most of the population will be out of work and won't have anything to do. Well, yes, there was massive disruption when we moved away from an agrarian economy, but we didn't end up with permanent technological unemployment. What people did is they adjusted and started doing different things so that now most of the jobs that people do now didn't really even exist at the time of the American founding, and no one could have imagined it. What we're doing right now, no one could have imagined this in 1776 or even in 1800. And so that's the, I say, we, we don't actually know what's going to happen in the future because we, we can't see into the future. And so my argument is that let's just look at other times in history in which economies have transformed radically and say, okay, what happened then? Because there's no reason to think that what's happening now is going to be different in kind. What's different now, if it's anything, is just that the change is happening much more quickly than it has in the past. Got it. And so, something I want to come to is I'm just looking at some of the questions being posted on our live stream on YouTube. Uh, people are wondering about certain ethical questions or even gospel-related questions that tie in with mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, transhumanism. We'll, we'll come to that in a bit. But, Jay, I, I want to make a bold prediction. I'm going to go out on a limb here. As a non-economist <laughs> and a non-futurist, I'm going to make a bold prediction. All right. Maybe there's someone listening right now, and they, they're a mechanic, right? And they're thinking, oh, man, you're going to be able to make a robot that's going to be able to repair cars better than me. Right, right. But my prediction is that this guy could then become a robot repairman. What do you think of that? <laughs> that's right. Say that's that. exactly right. I mean, that's, New jobs. No, this is what it, yes, it's a different thing. And that's, it's, it's easy what we do. It's, it's a classic problem in economics called the problem of the seen and the unseen. What we notice, what we see is the job that gets replaced. And we have a hard time picturing the job that pops up as a result of the new opportunities. And that's always the dilemma we're in. 
And if, if you think back, I remember I got my first PC in 1985. So in the business world, they predate that by a good amount. So computers mm-hmm. have changed the world dramatically. And yet, you now have computer programmers. You, you have, so yeah. again, you, you can't foresee all of this. But because you are an economist and because you are a, a futurist as well, looking at implications, looking at how things work on society as a whole, I, I want to explore these with you. We come back. My guest, Professor Jay Richards, his new book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. If you have a question, you can call 866-348-7884 or... You can post it on YouTube or Facebook. We'll try to reply to some of your questions. Just getting started with Professor Richards. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown, my special guest, Professor Jay Richards, his brand new book, The Human Advantage. Jay, as as you lay out the foundation, how we got here, your first chapter from hunter-gatherers to homeowners, and then rise of the robots, will smart machines eat all the jobs? We see little glimpses here and there, maybe a, a video of of a robot running and look at this, and then we know about, say, robotic t- technology and developed in Israel, and this little robot goes through your bloodstream and, and performs surgery and or it has a camera and things like that. But but how, how far has the technology really gone? As you researched for this book, what did you discover? Mm-hmm. Well, what I discovered is if, if you think about artificial intelligence as we experience it, so things like Google, that's the real artificial intelligence that most of us experience every day. It's actually really astonishing. I mean, I find it eerie how good Google is at guessing what it is I'm looking for. But you have to remember, Google is not some computer in a room somewhere. What it is is a networked algorithm that networks everybody else using Google. So they type in a question and then they make a choice. And then what you do when you do that is you're teaching Google, in a way, a little piece of information. So the artificial intelligence that we experience in Google is actually a vast, complex, well-designed network of millions and millions of intelligent agents. So we're not dealing with some kind of independent robot. On the other hand, if you, if you think about the sort of most fabulous claims of, of science fiction, the idea of robots or machines becoming conscious free agents like we are. Those are, of course, the most interesting movies to watch about this. But there's no reason in the world to think that anything like that is ever going to happen. I mean, there's no more reason to think a computer, if it gets really fast, is going to become a conscious agent than to think that if a tractor becomes really strong, it will become a giant ox. They're just different kinds of things. There's nothing about computation that's happening inside a computer that has any connection with what's happening in the minds of conscious human beings. And that's, I think, where people get mixed up. We experience these amazing things that mimic intelligence because they're designed to do that. And then we make this mental leap based on the movies that we've seen that these things are going to become conscious at some point. And that's it's a really big philosophical blooper. You can make really strong philosophical arguments for why that's not the case. But I just encourage everyone, 
sever those ideas in your mind. We're going to get amazing things that mimic intelligence because we've designed them to do so. We're not going to create machines that are literally intelligent like we are. All right. So there's something unique about human consciousness that does distinguish us, not just from the animal world, you're saying, but also from the world of artificial intelligence. So, okay, is this just something, let me play the devil's advocate here. Uh, Is this just something you're saying because of your deeply committed Christian philosophy? Is this, is this just some hope you're clinging to that, Mm. that, you know, we're different because we're made by God? What if we're just evolved like everything else? Then why couldn't artificial intelligence evolve? That, that, this is, I think, the key question, and as you know, Michael, in the book, I mean, the book's not the Christian book in that it's not, it's not published by a Christian publisher. I don't presuppose Christian theology in the book, and so I realized, okay, I could make an explicitly Christian argument against materialism and strong artificial intelligence, but what I do in the book is make what I just consider common sense arguments. So you don't mm-hmm. actually have to assume that we're made in the image of God. Just take, I say, any person, just take what you already know. You already know that you're a conscious agent. You know that you can affect the material world and move your body around and move things by a conscious choice of will, so you exercise freedom. If you just assume all those things that you know most directly to be true, you already have enough to doubt the materialist superstition that everything can be reducible to blind atoms colliding with atoms and physical physical laws. You You have all the reason in the world to believe that materialism isn't true just from your own existence and experience as a free and conscious agent. Now, I think that all makes a lot more sense in a Christian framework, but I really think if someone's just willing to be honest about what they experience directly about themselves, they already know that they're persons with not just consciousness, but with freedom, with the ability to affect the material world around them. I actually don't think that's compatible with materialism. And in, in the conclusion of the book, I actually quote the materialist who will tell us that, that, you know, if materialism is true, there are no persons, our thoughts aren't about anything, there are no moral truths. That's what the, the smart materialists tell us is the, are the implications of their theory. And, and uh, wasn't it a debate you did with Christopher Hitchens, where you kind of just laid mm-hmm. out the question, which, which of these is more logical, which worldview, which a discussion of origins makes more sense. So your appeal was just to look at this rationally, and, and that's your approach here, correct? It is, exactly. Rather than presupposing the Christian worldview and then arguing against something, which is, I, I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, that's not what I wanted to do here. I wanted to make a public argument. And so just as I did with Hitchens, I didn't tell Christopher Hitchens that if he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't know that murder is wrong. No, in fact, I said, no, Christopher Hitchens knows perfectly well that murder is wrong. The question is, is in what view of reality does a moral truth make more sense? In the theistic view, where there's a rational and good God, or it's just all matter, blind matter in motion? So it's not whether um, the atheist or the materialist can know certain truths. The question is, okay, but if they take that to be true, that they are persons that have freedom, does that really make any sense in a materialistic worldview? I don't think it does. Mm. So a, a large part of your book, Jay, is devoted to rebuilding a culture of virtue. So you're actually looking at moral issues, moral implications of where things are going with artificial intelligence. And obviously, we rely on it more and more. I I know my way around to less places now because everything's GPS, and I don't I don't think about where I'm going to try to remember directions. But but you stress 
uh, the human difference, what only we can do, fear not, courage in an age of disruption. So if we have to rebuild a culture of virtue, what is it that we've lost? What is it that we had that has fallen apart? It's the institutions that actually inculcate virtue. Because my argument is, you know, I mean, I essentially say, look, if we as human beings are uniquely free agents, then we can develop virtue. And what virtue is, is it's the, you, you focus on an action uh, that you do consciously. Let's say you want to learn to play the piano, so you practice it every day. It starts out just as drudgery, then it becomes a habit, so you kind of do it automatically. And if you keep doing it, it eventually works its way back into your being. So in a sense, you become more than you were before. You have acquired a virtue. And now this is something that um, uh, normally, you know, little kids, if you just leave them to their own devices, they don't tend to develop these virtues. They develop vices. And so you have to have institutions like families and neighborhood groups and churches and cultures that reinforce these things. Because children, humans all start out as babies. They need to be in other human institutions and social settings that teach them these virtues. And my argument is that, in fact, they're going to be a set of virtues we really need to focus on in order that we can really develop our comparative advantage in a world in which machines do many of the things that previously only we could do. And that's the, I think that's the, the hardest part of the message of the book, is that at just the moment in which things are changing more rapidly than they ever have before, the very cultural institutions we need to develop this, this new set of virtues are most under attack. All right. So, again, when, when we put the emphasis on robots can do this and do that and they'll replace humans, then we forget what humans are really all about. The, the things that make us special, the things that stand out because we're creating God's image, are not primarily the fact that we have a thumb and that thumb enables us to do things that other animals can't do. Or, or that you know we can learn how to use tools better and so make guns to, to shoot. There, there are other things about us. So just the call for courage, where, where does that fit in in the human advantage? It fits in, and that's, of course, the, the first virtue I talk about, because I start out by saying, okay, so what is an information economy really like? And I say, well, it's highly disruptive. It's, uh, it's growing and changing at really exponential speeds. It's digital, which means we're making more and more things out of bits rather than atoms. Um, it, it's ever more connected and networked, and it's hyper-informational. Those are all a bunch of big words, but th that's what makes the information economy what it is. And then there's a virtue corresponding to each of those things. And so the high disruption, that means there's a bunch of stuff coming into existence, jobs and industries that appear, and then 10 years later, they become obsolete. And so what you've got to have to deal in a world like that is courage. And courage is the willingness to act even with the possibility of failure. So if you're a student just getting out of college, you've got to be willing to try some things. Maybe you get a job in an industry, and it turns out that whole industry becomes obsolete. You can't allow that to say, well, I guess there's nothing that I can do. You've got to actually be willing to act and to fail and then to try again. So that type of courage actually has always been important, of course, but it's even more important in a world that's highly disruptive in which you can't count on four years of college and then getting a job at an employer and then staying with that employer doing the same thing for the next 40 years. That's just a very unlikely scenario for people that are now in their 20s. Interesting. And it takes it takes courage to face that, but then that's one of the things that a human being can have that a computer or a robot can't have despite what we may see in popular movies, TV, or read in 
novels. All right, Jay, we come back. I, I want to explore this further. And if you don't mind, just because there's so much discussion now on where things are going, new Democrat candidates really pushing socialism. If you don't mind, if we just take a few minutes to talk about socialism and communism somewhere during this interview, that would be awesome. Sure thing. All right, friends, we will be right back with Professor Jay Richards. Again, the new book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. Also, just the very moment I started speaking with Professor Richards, my latest article on the stream went live and appealed to the mainstream media. Own up to fake news. Hmm. There's a reason so many Americans are highly, highly skeptical of mainstream media today. And by the way, I believe there's bias on the right as well as on the left. But the left needs to own up to its fake news as well. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Did you read years ago the Isaac Asimov book, I, Robot, part of his Robot series? Yeah, and then, of course, turned into a famous recent movie, Robots, Artificial Intelligence, kind of taking over. Maybe you read Dan Brown's latest novel, Origin, and of course, you can expect the anti-Christian type bias in it, but artificial intelligence takes over there as well. Yet, my guest, Professor Jay Richards, argues that no matter what robots do, and there are a whole lot of things robots can and should do to help the human race and, and help our planet, human beings have a distinct advantage, a difference between humans and robots is foundational and essential. Jay, thanks for joining us today on the broadcast. My pleasure, Michael. Good to be with you. All right. So let's discuss your book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. And let's start to to unpack some of the virtues that we're going to have to emphasize. The heart of your book, Rebuilding uh, a Culture of Virtue, we, we can be connected to the whole world right now and yet live increasingly isolated lives. Uh, how is that something mm. we need to overcome? It's, well, first of all, we've got to realize that, say, interacting with people on Facebook is just not the same thing is interacting with somebody across your dinner table. I mean, I'm not one of these people that says, oh gosh, any, all this stuff is completely useless. Get rid of your phones, get rid of your computers. No, I actually think there's a reason that people like to interact on Facebook. I like to be able to connect with people that I went to high school with that I would have no connection with. And so I see that as, as an additional way of interacting. The problem is, is when people allow that to substitute for other much more kind of basic and fundamental ways of interacting. And so, and that's always the case Almost with any kind of technology, you could say, well, you know, talking on the phone, for instance, it's not nearly as intimate as talking to someone across the dinner table. On the other hand, before telephones existed, you couldn't talk to people at all that were more than, you know, a mile away, whereas now we can talk to family on the other side of the world. And so I think always when it comes to these kinds of technologies, especially network technologies, we need to see that uh, they're always mixed blessings. They, can, they give us new opportunities, but we shouldn't use those opportunities 
to, to substitute for the much more basic ways that we still absolutely inter- need to interact. Even when we have 3D holographic images of each other, look like you know we're in the same room with each other, that's never going to be an adequate substitute for the much more bodily and human ways that we're meant to interact. And, and with that as, as well, as technology increases and as technology becomes more creative, you would argue that we have to do the same, that we can't be so fragile or so stiff. That's exactly right. In fact, that's the second virtue I talk about is anti-fragility. And anti-fragility doesn't just mean that, that you're not fragile. It doesn't just mean that you're tough and strong, like a, you know, like a, a metal ball bearing or something like that. That would be rigid or robust. Anti-fragile is the ability to actually improve when you're per- perturbed. So it's like the property that muscles have when you go and you work out and you lift weight. If you do it properly, you'll tear down the muscle and create an inflammatory response. But if you rest and eat properly, you actually build up larger, stronger muscles than you had before. That's anti-fragility. And my argument is we need to develop that. Not, it's not just a biological and physical uh, property. It's, it's a type of virtue in which you not only have the courage to try things and maybe fail, but you also cultivate the virtue of learning from failure so that that failure actually benefits you in the next thing that you do. That's something we really have to choose to do because we all know some people who have, you know, they have a setback and they say, well, gosh, that taught me something I didn't know before. And then they, they, they go on. Other people have a setback and they use it as evidence that they can never succeed. And the way in which you respond is crucial there. And the way in which you respond determines whether you, you were, are you going to respond uh, virtuously or viciously to it. That's, that's what separates us from humans, as humans from mere machines. We have the freedom to be able to make those choices and also to allow our choices to shape us so that we actually become more than we were before. But don't don't we have a, a bit of a of, of a double whammy here? Because as we develop new technology, it can also create a passivity within us. As I mentioned, GPS. I don't have to think about where I'm going. GPS will just tell me. I don't have to remember this. My calendar is going to remind me. So the more we develop, you're saying that that as technology changes, we have to change. We have to look at what God's put within us, which is infinitely better than when we could put in a robot, and, and, and rise higher, and yet a lot of the technology we develop kind of puts us to sleep. It's, it's a bit of a challenge. It is, but what's funny, Michael, is this has always been a challenge. I mean, it's funny because in one of Plato's dialogues, he has Socrates talking about a king who bemoaned the existence of writing. He said, when we have written texts, we don't remember things anymore because we can write them down. And that's actually true. If you look at oral cultures that don't have written languages, they can remember entire sagas that we can't remember. And so it's, oh, it's true. In fact, if you can write it down, you tend not to remember it. It's the same thing. You're you're not going to sort of enhance and refine your direction sense if you're able to use a GPS. And so, again, that's why these technologies are sort of trade-offs. But I don't think anybody would say, well, let's go back to being an illiterate culture because then we'll remember stories better. You just have to you have to do things to counterbalance those things. Yeah, and and you know this far better than, than, than I would know it, but what happened during the Industrial Revolution? There must have been the same kind of concerns. Absolutely. In fact, there were the same kinds of arguments that were happening, that people, farmers would be left. In fact, if you read some of the, 
this is honestly Marx. If you read Marx in the 19th century, some of the, the Fabian socialists in the 19th century, they saw people moving from farms to cities. They saw the kind of early stages of industrialization in which you had a lot of poverty. Marx predicted in the Communist Manifesto that the wages of workers in factories was going to keep going down and down and down as factories got more productive. Turns out exactly the opposite happened. In fact, uh, the workers who worked in more advanced factories, that enhances the value of their labor. So they got paid more. And so this, this prediction has been happening really for centuries in more or less the same form. If you think about it, the first time someone uh, invented a tractor, it made men that were working with mere shovels in some cases obsolete. But it didn't get rid of construction. It didn't, it didn't destroy all the possible jobs. It just created opportunities, say, in farming. Um, yes, thousands and thousands of family farms disappeared, but the long-term effect was that we spend far, far less on food than people did a century ago, far less. And so that frees up income and it frees up time for us to do and spend our money on other things. And that's, in fact, what always happens. And you know, it's interesting. I, I read an article one time saying, what if someone began to predict cars, the effect of cars on America? And the main thing they said is, we will have X number of people die every year mm -hmm. because of these new contraptions. Everyone would say, we're not going near that. But then someone else <laughs> right. needs to say, we will save like 50 times amount of those lives with ambulances and fire trucks and yeah. everything else, you know, and then and improve life. So that's the thing. We can often focus on the, the fearful part, which, you know, there may be valid concerns to raise, but yeah. we, we forget, again, the name of your book, The Human Advantage. Jay, in, in a book like this, where you talk about smart machines and where things are going, it's surprising that you end the book with a focus on, on how to pursue happiness. So how does that tie mm -hmm. in with your larger theme? Well, honestly, I mean, the reason that most people are concerned about these economic questions, Michael, is because if you're an American, it's because usually you kind of hope, am I going to have a, a decent life? Not just, not just sort of happiness in some abstract kind of mental or, or immaterial sense, but just basically, you know, this worldly happiness where I have a family and I can afford the things that I need and I'm not constantly worrying where I'm going to get rent payments. And these are just kind of basic things that are perfectly legitimate things for, for people to worry about. And the idea of uh, the American dream is actually it's less uh, historic than this idea of the pursuit of happiness, of course, which Thomas Jeff Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, he says that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But when people hear happiness these days, we tend to think of that as sort of short-term uh, sensual pleasure in a sense. But if you actually look at the classical definition of happiness, it's like the word blessed in the New Testament. Um, if you look at Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas' definition of happiness, they're talking about what they call eudaimonia, which is really the word we use now is flourishing, but it's kind of a fully lived, flourishing life in which um, our bodily needs are met, but also our mental and intellectual and spiritual needs are met. And so my argument is that if you understand happiness properly, uh, it, it, the fact that we're both spiritual and physical beings, uh, that there's no reason to think that we're going to lose that in an age of smart machines. If you thought that the pursuit of happiness was possible in a previous era, don't think that suddenly in the 21st century, with machines doing a lot of the stuff we thought only humans could do, that, that no longer are we going to live in a world fit for human beings and for the pursuit of happiness. No, we absolutely are. And insofar as true happiness involves virtue, which is what all the American founders said, um, that's even more true than ever, because we absolutely, if you want to pursue happiness, 
uh, and pursue the American dream in the 21st century, you absolutely have to develop a core set of virtues to be able to succeed. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I have a very important and special announcement for everyone listening, watching all over America, around the world, wherever you're tuning in. In the midst of my interview with Professor Jay Richards on his new book, The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines, robots took over our studio, artificial intelligence cut our lines, I was held, no, no, none of that happened, I wasn't held hostage, it looks just like our internet system crashed. Jay, you were right on a roll, man, I was with you, inch for inch, and suddenly everything gone. You know, one day I was I was doing a show and somehow somebody asked me a question about alien abductions. And next thing, every phone line literally was lit up with people talking about aliens. <laughs> and then I made one point and suddenly all all the line, every one of them disappeared. So ever since then, we've been blaming things on aliens. Now we're going to have to up it. Robot aliens, yeah. I think. So, uh, all right. You were talking Sky, about Skynet. Was I think Michael Skynet was tired of our interview, and so he just silenced it. Yeah, so I was somewhere in the middle. I don't know when when it cut off. We were probably about to say something positive about President Trump, and and Google or YouTube just <laughs> took over, yeah. cut us, cut the cord. It's scary though. But again, so we look at oh man, this is terrible. Look what happens. Everything can just be taken down in a second. We forget. Hey. In the same way, we can talk to all these people all over the Internet without going anywhere. Uh, All right. So pursuing happiness, the essence Mm -hmm. of happiness is is not having more things. What what is it? Right. uh, The the classical definition is really what we would talk about as flourishing. I mean, really, when Jesus, very often when the Bible talks about blessed, especially in the Old Testament, it's not just something that happens in the future kingdom of God. If you're blessed, you're blessed now for bodily and spiritual beings. And so a blessing very often has to do with our normal state of existence. If you have a family, you want to, be, you want to have enough to eat, you want to be able to house your children. And so I think it's perfectly fine for your, your happiness ought, definition ought to include those things, but you don't want to reduce it to sort of temporary sensual pleasure, because true happiness it includes virtue. It includes a pursuit of the proper ends of what it means to be a human being. So God's made us with a nature. That means we're supposed to do some things and not supposed to do other things. If we know what we're supposed to do, then we can proper, we truly flourish. We truly achieve happiness by doing those things, which is almost never going to mean pursuing your short-term sensual pleasure. So the third American dream, what is it? The third American dream is the ability to create value for yourself and for others. And I argue that's always been a part of it. I mean, anybody that studies economics, if you look at successful entrepreneurs in a market economy, really successful entrepreneurs usually, they don't succeed by taking wealth or money from other people. They succeed by anticipating the needs and wants of others and then and then providing it, providing it at a price that you will freely pay and a quality you're, 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 that you like. 
So in other words, it's actually creating value for other people. But I argue that in a, in a world in which a lot of goods are digital, so in other words, you know, if you if you create an app for uh, your iPhone, that's that's something that can be created on your computer. If you create workout videos that you upload to YouTube or commentaries like you do that you upload to YouTube, there's well, so many more ways to create things that are of value to other people than we could say in the early agrarian era where basically most people were just barely making enough food to survive themselves. That's what subsistence farming means. means. They couldn't actually create value for other people. And if you look at the happiness studies, which I do in, near the end of the book, people are most happy when they have what Arthur Brooks calls earned success. So not just getting wealthy. It's just somebody who's dropped you a bunch of money or you win the lottery. Very few people get happiness that way. The real kind of sustained happiness comes from where you feel like, okay, you've succeeded economically, but you've done it by actually creating value for other people. That's the thing that most people have sustained happiness. So if, you, if you're doing something, um, you might, as I tell the story of this guy, Les Swanson, who's a septic tank cleaner that has a company that cleans septic tanks. It sounds awful to me, but he's very happy because he sees himself as creating value for other people and for himself and for his family. And so that's what I, I actually think the nice thing about the, the era into which we're going is there's going to be a lot of ways for people to be able to create new kinds of value for other people, but we're not going to be able to do that if we don't inculcate these virtues that I talk about. Got it, friends. The book, The Human Advantage by Professor Jay Richards, always a fascinating read, always well-written, engaging, but, but full of great research and information. What about potential threats to human well-being, human flourishing, ethical issues, questions that can come up because of artificial intelligence. Does any of that concern you? It does. In fact, you know, right near the end, I have a chapter of these, you know, sort of the bad things to worry about. I do talk about, alas, the kinds of technologies like sex robots that nobody wants to talk much about. That's the darkest of the dark side of this technology. They're already coming, whether you sort of like it or not, they're here and we're going to have to deal with them. So there's always going to be wicked and evil things that people can do with technology. Porn is going to get, in a sense, better and better and higher and higher resolution and more and more addictive. That's the sort of reality. But I also think the thing that we most really want to look out for is really bad policy advice, because there's this idea called the universal basic income. It's just the idea that uh, everybody's going to be out of a job, and so the government should just send everyone a check so that you basically get paid not to work. In fact, Michael, there have been at least a dozen books making basically this argument uh, over the last couple of years. And so in some ways, all this hype about the coming robot apocalypse is really just a justification for a kind of a new brand of socialism in which the government just sort of pays everybody. So then they're sort of free to do what they want. We can do, you know, we play World of Warcraft for 15 hours a day or something like that because the government's sending us a check. I think that is a terrible idea. First of all, it would not require, that would mean that we wouldn't have to sort of focus our creative energies into serving others, but it would also create all the perverse incentives of the welfare state. If you think the welfare state harmed generations of people and put them in cycles of dependency and poverty, imagine what would happen if we now apply mm. all the incentives of the welfare state to the population as a whole. I think that's what a universal basic income would basically do. Got it. All right. So even though we're focusing on your book, The Human Advantage, I, I can't let you go without touching on this. And you just mentioned the welfare state. So three minutes for our listeners. Give us a primer on socialism, communism, what they are, and why we don't want to lean in that direction. 
Well, socialism is ultimately the idea that the government owns everything, owns the means of production, that it, it abolishes private property. Whenever that's been tried in the 20th century, it's led to mass death and poverty. Even the more moderate versions like democratic socialism, in which the government takes over, but it starts at the ballot box. That's what's happened in Venezuela, which is running you know, something like 20,000% annual inflation right now. It's a complete catastrophe. Whenever this has been tried, we have dozens of examples of socialism uh, in the 20th century. It is always a disaster. So it's very distressing that uh, lots of people, especially lots of young people, seem to be warming to socialism or to this thing called democratic socialism. That's ultimately what it's about, is allowing the government to basically have control over every detail of our lives. It doesn't just get between us and our enemies. It gets between mother and father and parent and child and employer and employee. That's ultimately what socialism is. If you're actually worried about poverty, if you're worried about poor people getting ahead, then look to the actual economic systems that have been proven to actually help the poor. Private property rights, titling rights, rule of law, economic freedom. Those are the things that actually allow cultures to emerge from poverty. Socialism has never been shown to do that. In fact, it's been shown over and over again in the 20th century to do just the opposite. So this is not the Christian New Testament way? Socialism is not what the Bible teaches? It's absolutely not. I mean, people often, when they superficially read uh, the first chapters of Acts, in which the church in Jerusalem sold their belongings and shared with each other, that's not socialism and communism. Notice there's no government confiscating private property. There's no warfare between the workers and the managers. What a group of people did, new Christians in Jerusalem, the Jews had come from around the, the Roman world at Pentecost. Thousands of them become Christians. There's a few locals. And most of them are away from home, away from their jobs and families. And so in that unique context, the Holy Spirit inspired the locals, essentially, to sell their things and then to share freely among them. But this was certainly not socialism. It was just group sharing. And it was never advocated. It's not like it was ever treated as a norm even in the other New Testament churches, Paul never advises this, for instance, for the Church of Thessalonica or Corinth. And so you can only think that's communism by reading back in communist theory into the text. What you're really talking about is voluntary sharing for a small, uh, short period of time. Got it. And, and for folks who don't know you, Jay, I'm assuming that when you hear the word gospel, the first word that comes to your mind is not guns. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, I spend most of my time talking about the intersection of theology, ethics, and economics, so that's what I'm talking about. And so I think of these as a sort of a practical implication of the gospel yeah. for living our lives. And insofar as we have to eat and we have to live, then we need to think about these things. But I also don't think that it's the central claim for Christians or the gospel itself. I think Christians can—you can be a Christian and disagree with me, obviously— on economics. I just think you'll be mistaken about economics. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reason I raise that is because sometimes people just think, well, if you're anti-socialist, then you're hyper-capitalist, and that means it's God, gun, and you're... But, but that, you're, you're coming at this from a broad-based, biblical, theological, historical perspective that is super helpful. And I love it when you and James Robinson apply it to a hundred other areas, be it immigration or whatever. So friends, if you haven't read anything by Jay Richards, Check him out. He's got tons of amazing stuff. I, I wish he had more time to write more articles on the stream because I always learn from them. His new book, The Human Advantage. By the way, Jay, this has not been me. This has been a robot interviewing you the whole time. But Mike <laughs> wow. Brown will be back tomorrow. Yeah, pretty impressive. All right. Thanks for joining us, man. Great to have you on. 
Thank you, Michael. All right.